Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley in Cardiff today. Uh, my tour of the country continues. Did the stand-up show in Cardiff last night and we've been broadcasting on Times Radio live from the National Museum in Cardiff today. Uh, coming up on the podcast, I've been chatting to Simon Hart, the Welsh Secretary, about everything from uh, the, the future of Wales, uh, the prospect of independence, the future of Boris Johnson too. And uh, it, although it was recorded a few days ago, I asked him as well about the Ukrainian situation as well. Uh, so that's coming up on the podcast in just a moment. Also, the incredible story of John Hughes, the uh, Welshman who founded the Ukrainian city of Donetsk, uh, which seemed like the perfect opportunity to tell that story while we were here in Wales. But first, we kick off with our columnist panel, a special Welsh columnist panel uh, joining us here in the museum. We were joined by Will Hayward, the Wales Affairs Editor from Wales Online, and Bronwyn Weatherby from the Press Association. Um, let's, let's kick off, uh, obviously, with the situation in Ukraine. Clearly, the sort of national uh, diplomatic and military response has been led from Westminster. What's, been the, what's, what's the response? Is there a, a separate and distinct response from Wales as well, Will? Well, Mark Draper does like to do a, uh, a separate response where he can. Um, he's uh, announced four million of aid um, to Ukraine from Wales. Uh, he's also announced that Wales will be a nation of sanctuary, which is a, a bit of a contrast to what Priti Patel, who's kind of been dragged kicking and streaming to have been almost a nation of sanctuary, if you were related to someone quite distantly, maybe. Um, so it, it's actually quite interesting, this Wales um, has always had a bit uh, more of a different attitude towards immigration um, as opposed to England, though there is quite widespread support in England for um, allowing um, refugees to come from Ukraine. Um, and I think part of that is, I mean, if you look at the building we're in now, this is the National Museum in Cardiff. Um, it was built in the late 1800s and it was actually to define Wales as part in the British Empire at the time. Wales was just a part of England, essentially. The Encyclopedia Britannica then said, for Wales, see England. That was the note in... Wow. Yeah, exactly. So this whole building, this whole civic centre we're in, was actually all about creating an idea of Welshness. So 
people in Wales, they've grown up, they were born into having a strong, dominant neighbour. And I think that's when um, uh, asylum seekers and refugees come to Wales. Um, There's usually quite a bit of a more maybe familiarity in terms of the psyches. I mean, um, people who come to uh, Wales are much more likely to identify as Welsh than British, whereas in England, people are much more likely to identify as British rather than English. So there's kind of a psyche thing in Wales. And Bobby, what about in terms of attitudes? Definitely in England, you know, it's dominated lots of the political conversation about mm. immigration. Clearly, there's a difference between helping refugees fleeing a, a war zone if you were coming here economically. Certainly in Scotland, when we were there a couple of weeks ago, there was a different conversation happening, actually, you know, in terms of filling vacancies and that sort of thing. There was a draw. They wanted more people. Is that, is that a similar issue in Wales? I think it is politically. Um, like Will said, Mark Drakeford's been very vocal about being... Um, having his arms open to refugees. He's been in Brussels uh, this week talking to them about Welshness on the back of St. David's Day. And part of that is that um, he wants to make Wales a nation of sanctuary, as Will said. Um, So I think politically, it's definitely different to the political landscape in the UK. You know, Priti Patel, there was a lot of um, negative press around them saying that you know they weren't really going to do much in terms of changing their policies on on immigration and accepting refugees and then they've given a little and it, it sort of nudged a little bit more so originally exactly. it was only close family members and they've slightly broadened that definition yeah but compared to what the you know countries in the eu yeah. are doing um in terms of saying right we're not going to have any cap on the amount of refugees coming what the uk government's doing looks paltry yeah. <laughs> in compared to that um to point out, defence isn't a devolved issue in, in Wales. So there's only so much Mark Drakeford and the Labour government here can do. Um, and that, for them, is basically portraying their attitude yeah. towards refugees coming here. So they're saying they're mobilising the local authorities to accept refugees, and they're really putting it out there with their aid and with their acceptance that this is a place where Ukrainians are welcome. And, and Will, because immigration isn't uh, devolved, is this just setting up another sort of flashpoint between Cardiff and London? We saw a lot of it during the pandemic, but at least everyone was sort of doing the same thing, and the, you know the money was flowing from the Treasury and so on. Because Mark Drakeford can't open the borders, he can't say, well, we'll take 100,000 people from Ukraine into Wales, because he doesn't have that power. So he's sort of relying on, you know, he can, he can, he can provide the sanctuary for those that Westminster government does allow in. But it's a different, I mean, you know, he doesn't have that power. Yeah, I think critics of devolution and, um, well, mainly critics of Mark Drayford would say, why don't you focus on the things where you do have competencies? So Wales has huge issues with child poverty, um, unemployment, um, and this is stuff that largely falls within the Welsh Government remit to fix. There's arguments that can be made that perhaps they don't have the tools available to fix these because they don't have um, much control over things like taxation um, and benefits. However... um, as we've seen through the pandemic, the Welsh Government has realised that it can flex its muscles and I've seen surprised actually it's quite popular in Wales to set up as a juxtaposition to, um, to Westminster. It's almost like they haven't noticed Scotland doing it for the last uh, 15 years. Um, so uh, it, it, it could be likely another flashpoint. It's a source of frustration, especially among um, Welsh Conservatives and Conservatives in Westminster that Wales doesn't uh, has focused on beyond its competencies, most recently with the... Um, 
um, universal basic income trial, which actually is now just a basic income trial. Uh, so it, it, it will likely be another flashpoint, but it proves very popular with a lot of people in Wales. People in Wales repeatedly have voted for devolution. They've repeatedly reper, um, returned pro-devolution parties. So, yeah, it's not something that's going to go away. It's interesting, Bob. I mean, later on, we're going to hear from uh, Simon Hart, the Welsh Secretary. And he, it, clearly, he's frustrated that, I mean, I think this is probably true, if you speak to Westminster politicians, the same is true of their attitude towards Scotland, is that uh, leaders in, in Edinburgh and Cardiff spend, they would argue, more time complaining about what they can't do than making the most of the powers that they have already got. So it, the criticism in Wales is that uh, they could do things on tax, but they choose not to because actually complaining they haven't got enough money from Westminster is a politically more fruitful thing to do than putting up tax in Wales because then suddenly you have to take the blame for it. Yeah, I had a, a really interesting conversation with um, David Davies the other day uh, who works very closely with Simon Hart. and that He's a Welsh, junior Welsh minister. Exactly, yeah. yeah and he, um, he, the frustration from him came through in that conversation. Um, I think on the other side of things, so he was saying that, yeah, they're spending far too much time criticising the UK government rather than working with them. The other side of things is that Welsh MSs say that they're locked out of important discussions that involve Wales. Um, so it's it's that balance. Yeah, how much is it just political game playing? And, and how much of it is Wales just standing up for itself finally? Um, <sighs> It's tricky to know, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Um, uh, and Will, uh, do you feel, you've been obviously covering Welsh politics for a long time, um, do you feel there's now more interest nationally in the different, I mean, the, the, one of the things the pandemic did do was shine a spotlight on those differences. Do you think there's a better understanding, people like me and the Westminster bubble and all of that, a better understanding of what's going on in Wales? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think part of it's the fact that, the uh, governing party in Westminster is now acknowledging that devolution does exist, at least in some point. I think, uh, let's take the issue of HS2. So HS2 has been defined as an England and Wales project, despite the fact that none of the track is actually going to be laid in Wales. So that means that there's no Barnet consequential. So Scotland's going to get, I think it's 7 billion. I think Northern Ireland's going to get 3 billion. But Wales, because people in North Wales will be able to get to London slightly faster, isn't going to get the, some 5, million, 5 billion that it would have been owed to it. Um, I think probably five years ago, well, five years ago when this did come out, it did very much go under the radar. It was just kind of politicos and stuff who would be interested in this. But actually now it's a real source of frustration that Wales is really been shafted. I mean, HS2 is a north to south um, line, um, and yet it's not seen as benefiting Scotland, but it is seen as benefiting Wales. So it, I, I think this is much, there's a much there's been an awakening of Wales's devolved consciousness among people here. And I mean, it's mainly because that... Um, former social uh, professor Mark Drakeford can now decide you know, if you can visit your nan in a care home, whereas before it was a very obscure thing. There was a massive disconnect between what happened in Cardiff Bay and how it affected people's lives. I, I would totally agree. I think um, the pandemic has been a game changer for Welsh politics, just purely because every day in the news we've been talking about the different cases in Wales, Scotland, mm. England and Northern Ireland and the different uh, First Ministers and Prime Minister response to that. Um, in a way, it's one of, the, one of the things that has come up in um, Westminster is that it was a bit of a missed opportunity because if you remember right at the beginning of the pandemic, all four nations were really working together and, and really seemed to be cohesive in their answer to the pandemic. And that really started falling away. Um, 
and obviously the devolved nations would say that that started falling away when Boris Johnson started doing conferences without notifying them beforehand yeah, yeah, yeah. what was going to be said in but those. The counter argument Westminster is that sometimes when they did notify them before then, it got leaked before Boris Johnson got announced. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. I think everyone, everyone was probably up to no good. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, again because there's a conversation that's clearly happening in Wales as well, is uh, today is the uh, first anniversary, uh, the anniversary of Sarah Everard's uh, murder and her family have been speaking today. But um, policing in Wales have had their own issues as well. Yes, that that's true. I mean, uh, the domestic violence rates among I think it's uh, officers in the in the force um, perpetrating domestic violence. I mean, it is extremely high. Um, I think Will's mentioned before. There's a there's an ongoing case uh, in Gwent Police um, where there's there's I think you know a bit more than about that, but there's a sexual assault um, yeah, allegation. Yeah, so we've got four police forces in Wales and Gwent Police, which is the one in the north, uh, the southeast of Wales, uh, has had a series of quite high profile issues. So um, there's a, a, an ongoing uh, investigation and uh, three um, officers, very senior officers in Gwent Police are suspended um, over uh, an alleged sexual assault in Cardiff after a party. Um, what we've also seen... Uh, I should say that um, some of the um, the, arrest, uh, the suspensions there are regarding um, uh, the following investigation into it. Not everyone was necessarily involved in that alleged assault. Um, but also, um, there were the uh, forces, forces recently had to apologise to um, two of its um, former female officers who were um, physically abused by uh, a uh, officer who was a trainer in the force. He trained young officers over a long period of time. Um, uh, he was uh, found by a um, hearing to have been domineering, uh, physically abusive, emotionally abusive, and he was allowed to stay in post for over a decade with access to young female officers, um, several of whom he entered into relationships with. And it, it, I think it shows that these issues aren't just with the Met. This is in lots of police forces, but also in wider society. And it was the fact it was allowed to continue, which yeah. was the big issue. I don't, I don't think anyone could pretend we'll ever be able to stop things like this happening entirely. It'd be lovely to think we could, but it was the fact that the institution allowed this even to continue. Yeah. Even when it comes to that, I mean, yeah. this again and again, Bowman. Yeah, I mean, the, obviously there's a focus on the Met Police because of what happened to Sarah Everard, and it's the largest police force in the UK. But um, it feels like every police force up yeah. and down the country is in denial about the the issues that it has within its uh, institutions. I mean, there's a lack of trust in the police in Wales, as there is in England. And I, I don't think that's going to change without them changing, yeah. um, making real changes. I mean, there's fundamental problems in Wales, as there is in England, with the amount of prosecutions and um, you know, of, of rapes. Um, and that's, I mean, I think, I think it's like 1% or just over 1% of all allegations are uh, prosecuted. Uh, you're not going to get a growth in trust if, if things like that don't change. Not, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I not much has changed. That's Will Hayward and Bronwyn Weatherby joining us uh, here at the National Museum in Cardiff. Right, coming up is my interview with Simon Hart. So, Simon Hart, Secretary of State for Wales, thank you for inviting me into what it turns out is Jim Hacker's office. Yes, I hope that's the only similarity, really, <laughs> that you discover. Explain the history of the Wales office and its place in British political comedy. <laughs> well, it was the first uh, episode uh, one, series one of Yes Minister, when Jim uh, got his first ministerial job as, uh, I think, was it Minister for Administrative Affairs? It was this building. 
uh, into which he first stepped and met Sir Humphrey Appleby and Bernard. Very good, yeah. very good. But that's where the similarity ends. Well, I would hope so. I mean, I, I think um, there are some Sir Humphreys still about, not in this office, obviously, but <laughs> and the odd Bernard. But uh, uh, no, I think we're in a slightly more contemporary operation now. Very good. So explain, for people who don't know, the role of the Wales office. The, I mean, it, definitely everyone's sort of learnt a lot about devolution over the past uh, two years, not least, you know, different parts of the country having different COVID rules and so on. What, what do you do as the Secretary of State of Wales? I think it, it's, it's a question we often get asked. It's about making sure that everything that uh, is relevant to Wales, uh, whether, whether devolved or not for that matter, uh, get a proper hearing and that uh, we make sure that every, one of our roles at any rate, is to make sure that every single department of government, doesn't matter what it is or what it does, make sure that when it reaches a decision or when it comes up with a policy proposal uh, or anything like that, that they, they think union and they think Wales. Uh, because what we don't want to do is always find we're actually sort of playing catch-up, trying to remind people that uh, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland are as, as important parts of the United Kingdom as England is. So our job is to make sure in advance uh, that that is the case and that people don't make any decisions without thinking of us first and foremost. And that, of course, has been somewhat helped by the whole levelling up agenda um, the strengthening the union script that has become sort of pretty pretty normal part of the language now. You, talk, you mentioned strengthening the union. Actually, if you look at public opinion on uh, the union in Wales, 10 years ago, 10% of people supported Welsh independence. It's now up to 25, 30. In one poll last year, 42%. What do you think is driving that? Well, I, 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 I could make one important observation about that. Is whatever those figures show, they don't translate into voting habits. And at the last Senate election last year, three out of four voters who went to the polling booth voted for a unionist party. Back in the general election 2019, Plaid Cymru is the only party which is committed to pursuing the independence agenda, bombed again. Um, and have now actually got three MPs. They used to have four, they've got three. Uh, and they are, I'm afraid to say, they, are, they, they may claim to be the party of Wales, but voters do not... Uh, treat them as such when it comes to the ballot box. And as I say, whether it's Labour or Conservative or even Lib Dem, those are the parties that are generally attracting much more interest in Wales uh, than the one party committed to breaking up the United Kingdom. Does it not worry you that given what we've seen that's happened in Scotland, devolution was supposed to kill Scottish independence stone dead and now we've got the SNP, you've been in power for, what, 14, 15 years. Does it not worry you that, that that trend might continue in Wales? I think it's really important that we're not complacent about it. I, I do agree. And that, uh, and during COVID, it was interesting that, you know, part of the narrative around COVID was if we, you know, shut the borders, close the windows, shut the doors and lock out everybody, somehow uh, that that would be a... Um, uh, that would would save us from the worst uh, the worst effects of the pandemic, and of course I think that probably did generate a little bit of you know in, in independence curiosity. Maybe that model could be extended over a, a, a wider range of what we do. But I think as soon as the vaccine program came along, as soon as the economic interventions came into play, I think it very soon returned to a, a realization. Actually, as a union, we are we are we are better together than we are. Separate, and it's not, it's not a contradiction. And we hear it all the time. I hear it all the time where I where I live from my family and my friends. That it is perfectly, it is perfectly normal to be patriotically Welsh, but also patriotic, patriotically British at the same time. Those things things are not mutually exclusive. And I think sometimes in the arguments of the last few years, we've allowed it to become so. It, it never was, and it isn't now. On the subject of COVID, your former cabinet colleague, Lord Frost. 
said it was nonsense for Wales to have its own COVID rules. Do you agree with him? Uh, I must say, I, I wish that we could have approached all of the COVID reactions and interventions as one UK. I think it would have been easier to uh, communicate that to the population. I think it would have been easier to administer. Uh, we would have got a greater degree of public understanding and compliance for longer. And the, the real truth is, and sometimes people do say, well, you know, didn't Welsh Government handle it rather better? Wasn't it? Weren't the outcomes better? The reality is, that if you look at all of the measurements of success or failure, whatever they might be in COVID, uh, actually wasn't, there was precious little difference between England and Wales. Do you think it would have been, you could have had a more united front if actually the Prime Minister had picked up the phone to Mark Drakeford a bit more often, replied to some of the letters that he sent? That might have presented a more united well, I, response. I, 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 it used to frustrate me, it sort of still does frustrate me to a bit, that there was this sort of, um, allegation of a lack of communication. Uh, to be honest with you, on the one hand, you know, Mark Drakeford was going on about um, how important it was that Wales made its own decisions in its own ways. On the other, he was complaining about the fact that the Prime Minister didn't ring him and help him along the way more often. I mean, he can't have it both ways. He's either the First Minister of Wales and he can cope with that position, or he isn't. And I think he was trying to sort of slightly be both. Surely, and, surely a politician not trying to have their cake and eat it. That sounds well, um, <laughs> I, I... I lost count early on in the pandemic of the number of meetings which took place between uh, all of the devolved uh, administrations and UK government. And I mean, I gave dozens of answers on the on the floor of the House of Commons where I think I stopped answering the question. We we got north of two hundred meetings. You know, there was no lack of communication between UK Gov and uh, and Welsh Gov on any of these matters. And I think it was. I thought a little bit frustrating in the middle of something which was causing huge, huge angst to, to, to individuals and to companies for sort of every possible, every opportunity to make some sort of snide political comment. Um, you know, Nicola and Mark never, who appeared to be operating in, in, in sort of uh, in collusion on this, never failed to just literally every opportunity make some sort of slightly backhanded swipe at UK government. I, I, I frankly think in a pandemic there wasn't really a place for that. I wonder what you made actually of that, of Mark Drakeford as a unionist, essentially work, apparently working in cahoots with Nicola Sturgeon, who is very much not a unionist, well, and the risk that poses to the union. I, I mean, I'm not sure that, um, how much of a unionist Mark Drakeford really is. I mean, he's just got into bed with Plaid Cymru and formed a... Well, we're not allowed to call it a coalition agreement. We have to call it a cooperation agreement, because a coalition agreement comes with sort of terms and conditions attached. Um, but there are 46 policy areas now which he's um, linked arms with, uh, uh, with Plaid Cymru about, and which upon which he relies on a uh, Plaid Cymru support to get a majority. Now, just before the Senate elections last year, he absolutely assured us, as did Plaid Cymru, that would never happen. But now he's happily, as I say, in the, in the marital bed with the, with the separatists. And I, uh, not only was that a flagrant breach of everything that he promised to Welsh voters just before the election, it doesn't strike me as the actions of somebody who's a staunch unionist. Because getting into bed with Adam Price comes with a price, which is everything that Adam does as leader of Plaid Cymru will be seen, just as it is with Nicola Sturgeon, through the prism of how does this assist us in our determination to become an independent nation. So every single deal that Mark Drakeford does with Adam, um, who's you know, a, 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 a sophisticated operator in this field, um, will be 
uh, to enhance the possibility of an independent West. That's not the actions of a unionist. Well, that being the case then, and with the, the trend in the polling, are you concerned that in 10, 20, 30 years' time, Wales might not be part of the Union? Well, I'm, I, I think it is absolutely right to look at it as this is where Scotland was roughly right. 20 years ago. So if we want to avoid getting even close to that particular outcome, now is the moment to, uh, to stress the value of the Union. And I think to stress the value of Union, not in purely economic terms. I think, again, looking back at how we might have done things differently or better over, over generations now. I think we've, we were almost guilty of giving people a, a choice. If you can either be a, a unionist or a patriot, uh, or you needed to somehow, being a unionist was some kind of political, almost party political statement. I think that was wrong, because I think uh, for, for, for those of us in Wales, the, the union is, is it's, it's an emotional, uh, social, cultural, as well as an economic argument and I simply make I think we were guilty if I'm honest with ourselves about making it where you know count yourself lucky that you've got you know a rich grandparent who's gonna you know tip you a few quid every so often and I think that's quite condescending and I don't think that was probably the right um, argument to make I think now I, I would like to think that we can approach the, the whole question of the union um, looking at the history looking at the culture looking at the social elements as well as looking at you know, through great examples like the vaccination programme. Actually, when we're together, when we're joined in a union, it doesn't compromise uh, our history or our, or our values. But what it does do is add the possibility that we will be able to work in each other's best interests over things like vaccination or, or all, those, uh, all the vast amount of money the Treasury came up with at the time. Those are where the union is, is, is also important. Well, you mentioned money. Um, looking at the figures spending per head... Uh, you get £13,166 per head in England, £14,222 per head in Wales. So Wales is 6% above the UK average. In England, it's 2% below. Why, why do people well, in Wales deserve so much more money than people <laughs> in England? It roughly works out £1.20 per head in Wales to, one, to every £1 spent in England. And that's based well, that's on... That's a different way of slide. That's still more money, isn't it? It is, uh, and, and uh, I'm delighted. Why, I'm delighted it is. And it's all, it's all a, a byproduct of this thing which nobody's ever ever heard of, really, me included, before I took on this job with the Barnet formula. Um, and that's designed to reflect uh, the needs and backgrounds or social, cultural and economic backgrounds of the individual nations. So that is intended... But all of the nations, England, Wales, England, Scotland and Northern Ireland, all get more money and England gets less. How yeah, and, uh, but that, that I, I hope and always has been anyway, a reflection of the fact that the economic, uh, you know, the large part of the sort of economic generating power of the UK is based in London and the South East, and it's quite reasonable uh, that that uh, money is redistributed as evenly as possible, as possible across the rest of the UK. And um, Wales, is, and, and indeed, you know, Cumbria or Cornwall are, are, are beneficiaries of that, of spreading the wealth, of evening out, evening out uh, the wealth that can be produced in the sort of, in those big conurbations in, in England. So it's, um, I've never had any complaints from uh, English colleagues that they're being hard done by, but it is, a, you know, but we have often reflected on the fact that uh, uh, that arrangement quite rightly reflects particular challenges in Wales, uh, we hope in a reasonably fair, a reasonably fair and equitable way. Um, on the subject of coronavirus and, and how, you know, clearly Mark Drakeford's done quite well in the, in the polls. People seem to have quite liked his handling of it the last couple of years. I wonder if you think that's in part because he's a slightly serious, dull man, the sort of man that wouldn't have had lots of parties during lockdown, and that 
in comparison well, to, to your party leader, who's still dogged by everything. I mean, clearly the other events dominated the news at the moment, but the public have made their mind up about Boris Johnson, haven't they? Well, I, uh, to deal with the first question um, uh, about Mark Drakeford uh, initially, I think it, it's an unbelievably easy position to be in when you're responsible for spending the money, but you're not responsible for raising it. And I've had made criticisms of the devolution settlement before, that it does empower uh, Welsh Government with all of, the, all of the important levers over health and education, transport, uh, and you know, countless other areas for which they are solely responsible. The thing they're not responsible for is uh, running and coming up with a running a tax regime to pay for it. That's entirely a matter for UK government. So you have this very easy position, which Mark Drakeford did, is to say, these are all the lovely things I'd like to do, but it's those... Bastards in Whitehall who won't let me. That's a very doesn't matter how so boring you, you are. are you doesn't matter how boring you are. That's quite. A, are you in favour of then giving Wales tax raising powers? Wales already has tax raising powers or tax varying powers. Yeah. It's just very revealing that Mark Drakeford never uses them, because if he was to pay for all of the promises that he makes, the tax rate in Wales would be significantly higher than it is. And you mentioned that thing called the fiscal deficit just now, and um, that possibly explains why he's so reluctant to use the powers that he's uh, been given. But, um, you know, by way of dealing with the second part of your question, don't forget that Mark Drakeford managed to get about 45% of the nation of Wales to turn up and vote at a Senate election last year in a general election. That rockets up to near a 75%. So whatever people may think and say about him or Boris Johnson, whatever it is, to, when it comes to voter turnout, voter engagement in significant elections, uh, the election of a UK government is still something which commands significant interest in uh, significant interest in Wales. But if, if the polls to be believed, if we had a high turnout general election right now, um, an awful lot of senior Conservatives, even Boris Johnson himself, uh, on paper, his seats are at risk. Well, it's, it's as you rightly say, it's um, if we had an election now, which we don't, and, 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 and you describe it as on paper, which it isn't. Um, and so I, I think, uh, you know, there was a, apparently a... Uh, a quote that Mrs Thatcher made many years ago, which halfway through a parliamentary term, when she said, the trouble is we're not far enough behind. Uh, and so I think that we could easily be sort of driven, spooked or whatever by, uh, by opinion polls. And, in, in, and after 11, 12 years in, in office, it is unsurprising that there are going to be moments when things uh, don't go as well as, uh, as they, we would like and, and, and other moments when perhaps they do go, um, you know, reasonably well. And that's going to be reflected in the polling. What we have to consistently do is just to try and do, in, in Wales this is, what we are responsible for as well and as efficiently and as visibly uh, as possible. And when we've taken the Prime Minister to uh, various different parts of Wales, we, we were in... Um, uh, Aberconwy up in the North Wales coast recently and uh, the current PM has been there more often than Mark Drakeford has um, which tells you something. Well, in fact he went there one day at the height of uh, Partygate didn't he with all the questions about were the police going to be brought in, where was Sue Gray yeah, going to and, and guess what the reception we had at a, at a, uh, amongst the workforce of a quarry in North Wales and, uh, and, and other venues and factories went to uh, was actually incredibly warm. Incredibly warm. You, you have been sent out there, particularly the height of the party gate. You went on question time and had to try and defend the Prime Minister. More revelations have come out since. What's your current assessment of how bad things got in number 10? Well, and I, can he survive if he's fined by the police? I remember the um, uh, being set, sent out. I say sent out. I had actually uh, uh, volunteered for that particular task that week to go on question time. And 
Uh, again, I, I, I think my most accurate measurement of the temperature in all this is the, is the constituency post bag. It's not, dare I say it, mainstream media or even regional media. It's what are, what are the residents of Command and Western South Pembrokeshire saying, you know, and we, we, we you know, they're, they're not shy as they're not in any constituency of expressing a view. And I, th I thought the interesting thing during all of that was around the case of, look, yeah, you know, this doesn't look pretty. You've let us down. This is a mistake. We expect the Prime Minister to uh, not only apologise for that mistake, but to rectify the flaws in the system that it has exposed, um, which I would argue that has already taken, or has taken place, or is at least in the process of taking place. Um, new, further new appointments this very day, I believe. Um, but actually, not very many people, not very many people I spoke to said, off with his head. You know, actually, the number of people who are saying, I'm definitely never going to vote Conservative again because of this particular moment on May the 20th in 2019 or whatever, 2020, whatever it was. Um, it was, I'm not, I'm not saying at all that people weren't annoyed. Colleagues were annoyed, you know, voters were annoyed, supporters were annoyed. Of course they were. PM was annoyed, for that matter. Um, but what... Uh, why was he but, annoyed? He, he was annoyed that he was at a party uh, and he was found out about it. I think, he, well, he, you've, you've heard his comments in the House of Commons as, as, as clearly as I have. Yeah, he said, um, that he said, I've been assured there were no parties. Now the police are investigating I more think than it's, a dozen it's of like, them. It's like all of these things, though, isn't it? Is, I don't know about you, but I know there is barely a day when I don't walk from here in Whitehall back to where I uh, live in the week in, in Lambeth, wishing I hadn't done some things differently. But and he, wishing that I'd said something, wishing I'd used a different form of words, <laughs> wishing I'd, wishing I had, um, uh, you know, a decision I'd made I could have done differently. Uh, you know, life is just full, particularly when people are. But when you're the prime minister, it. you can't stand up in the House of Commons and say there were no. Par I was assured there were no parties, and it turns well, out he's sure, been investigated was, by the sure, police for but six. Surely, but surely it was for that reason. Again, you know, he was responding to requests we'd made, look, we, we, let, we need to get to the truth. Um, how do we get to the truth? He knows the truth. Hang on, hang on a minute. But the, the point is, um, it is it's what, what the opposition parties were calling for at the time was something of an independent inquiry so that the, the unvarnished truth could be established. That is what was put in place. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's all very well, and we see so much of this, that people call for something, and when that something doesn't necessarily come up with the answer, oh, well, we never meant that, we meant something else. The fact is, he, he said, he agreed that this needed to be fully uh, transparent and accountable. He launched the inquiry uh, under Sue Gray, which we are familiar with, and we're familiar with the outcome of that. Uh, we're familiar with where the Met police came in and uh, uh, made their uh, observations around this. Um, and so, as far as... I can see everything that people asked for to be done, including, by the way, changing the arrangements in number 10, so these kind of things, uh, you know, the, the, the risk of them ever happening again was absolutely minimised. All of those things have been done. You, you, I know you're, I've known you for a while, Simon, you're a decent man. Lawmakers can't be lawbreakers, can they? Can the Prime Minister, if he's found to have broken the law and is fined for it, can he really well, stay in office? I... I've learnt a lot, I've learnt enough in my life to know 
whether it's a court of law, or indeed whether it's journalists writing about a court of law, prejudging the outcome of an inquiry is a, is a mug I'm not day. prejudging it, I'm asking well, you a question. You, you're asking me a hypothetical question about what might happen at some future stage, uh, none of which you we, think, you none think, of which if we you know. You think it would be none okay of, if the Prime Minister broke the law? Well, the one thing I'm not going to do is it's sort of um, com commit my views about a p potential outcome to an inquiry which is incomplete and about which we know actually relatively little. If, if I was a journalist and I did that, I think my editor would uh, kick my ass. Um, and so as a politician, <laughs> I'm not going to do it either. I, I, th I, think, I think some of your, co your colleagues have said it would be, he could stay in office if he uh, was they, fine. They, 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 what, what I was asked on that question time if I to, to express a view about what I thought um, might be appropriate um, action as far as Prince Andrew was concerned. Um, I wouldn't be drawn on it then any more than I'd be drawn on it now because there are some things where contribution might be attractive, it might be controversial, it might generate news coverage, but it doesn't necessarily help provide the public with a sober view of what the outcome of it. So I'm not, they're my colleagues can say what they like, but I'm not going to be the one who prejudges uh, the outcome Fine. of, well, a, of well, an inquiry. We'll, we'll await the outcome, and, I, and, I, and I think you, if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't do that either. I, uh, we'll, yeah, but we'll probably um, put to one side the, the Boris Johnson, <laughs> Prince Andrew comparisons. That's Simon Hart, the Welsh Secretary there. And there's a little bonus on the podcast, just because it's a fascinating story. Uh, we've been looking at the connection between Wales and uh, Ukraine and the story of John Hughes, a listener, Laura got in touch to flag up the story of John Hughes, uh, a Welsh industrialist who helped to found the city, uh, which is now Donetsk in Ukraine, which is the heart of, of so much of the fighting that we've seen. So uh, this is what happened when I... Uh, caught up with uh, Professor Victoria Donovan. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So this is what happened when I caught up with Dr. Victoria Donovan, uh, a, an expert in Russian and Ukrainian history from the University of St. Andrews. Well, John Hughes was... Uh a fairly provincial character who um, was a son of an industrialist working at the Kavatha Ironworks in the sort of mid to late uh, 19th century. And he was fairly entrepreneurial um, and his star rose via the Uskside Engineering Works in Newport. And then um, he worked for a shipbuilding company on the Thames. 
Um, and it was his work inventing armor plate for ships that brought him to the attention of the Russian Tsar at that time, who invited him to come and advise about creating some sort of armor for um, some of Kronstadt's fortresses. Um, Kronstadt is a is a, an island just off St. Petersburg. And uh, so John Hughes went and um, advised on that. And at the same time, the Russian Tsar asked him about doing some scoping work in the Lysychansk area, which is in eastern Ukraine today, um, to look at the sort of failing uh, metallurgy industries that were functioning there at that time. So John Hughes went out, having this experience as, a, as an industrialist, he went out to what was then the s- southern part of the Russian Empire, um, today Ukraine, and he looked at what was going on out there and he thought that it would be possible to develop the um, metallurgy works. So he went back to Wales and he brought a number of mining engineers with him on a ship, as well as a load of mining equipment, um, and they founded uh, a settlement out there, which then took John Hughes's name. It was called Hughesovka, and that was later Russified to Yuzovka. And at first it was very small, just a couple of hundred miners, mostly foreigners, but it grew exponentially over time. And hundreds of thousands of laborers came to the settlement from all over the Russian Empire. What's interesting is that there were quite sort of different conditions in the British colonial part of the of Huzovka and in the um, part where the um, laborers from the Russian Empire worked. So while the British lived in relative privilege, the laborers worked and lived in abject poverty for the most part. How much sort of John Hughes was there? Was he feared, revered as the as the man who'd founded the town? I've just been looking at a portrait of him recently, actually. And the portrait shows a man, he looks like, to my mind, coming from Wales, recognisably Welsh. He's got this sort of methodist look, a sort of big bushy beard. He's got this sort of philanthropic look in the, in the portrait, which I think is intentional. He kind of had a cult of personality that um, was founded on ideas of him being enlightened, of him furthering education, of him looking after the workforce who was present in Huzovka. And this was true to an extent. He did sort of build hospitals and schools for the British managers who worked there. Um, but it was a very different story for the Russian laborers who lived in Huzovka, who had very little sort of provided for them, very few provisions, people were illiterate. So again, it was a very different story for the for the British workers who he looked after very well. And he was a philanthropist in that sense, and um, the local workers who weren't looked after very well at all. And what about the town itself? Does the, the town itself look recognisably Welsh or, or British in terms of architecture and that sort of thing? Well, in as much as um, the industrial architecture is is kind of recognisable the world over. So, you know, these mine shafts and these head frames that are recognisable from the South Wales valleys, you can certainly see um, them in the archival photographs. You could be looking at Ebervale, for example, or uh, some other sort of mining community in the South Wales Valley or in northeast England when you look at some of these photographs, apart from the fact that um, Huzovka was located on the Ukrainian steppe. So it's a very flat landscape. Sometimes when we've shown some of the photographs, we did an exhibition of the archival photographs um, from the Huzovka Research Archive, which is located in the Glamorgan Archives in Cardiff. People sometimes couldn't tell what was South Wales and what was Ukraine. So in that way, you know, these, these places were 
were very similar. Just talk us through the process of how, it, when did it stop being Yuzovka and how did it then become Donetsk? Well, it was Yuzovka until the point of the Russian Revolution in 1917. Donbass was full with foreign entrepreneurial capitalists. So there were um, Dutch industrialists, Germans, French, you know, people from Americans, the Kennedys, part of the Kennedy family were there um, trying to develop the pipe making industry. Um, so there were people all, from all over the world trying to make a fast buck, basically, in this um, region that had all of a sudden become available because of the changes that the Russian Empire made to um, the tariffs at that time. So it became sort of more economically lucrative to relocate your business to the Ukrainian East rather than to export to Russia. By 1917, a lot of the British industrialists had already left Yuzovka because they could kind of see the writing on the wall. There was kind of increasing um, labor unrest. Um, there were uprisings and also the uprisings were brutally put down by the by the Tsarist armies. Um, so many people had already left and decided to kind of take their money and run by that time. By 1917, obviously, the Bolshevik ref- revolution happened. The communists took over. It was very messy. There were there were years of civil war that happened next. But the the bottom line was that the Bolsheviks obviously weren't very keen on European capitalists presence in the region. So anybody who was left at that point was turfed out or sent packing or killed even. So the British left and they went to various places, um, Canada. Um, Some people went back to the UK. There's a case of one family who, who ended up back in Cardiff. Sometimes they were able to take some of their money that they'd made in, in, um, in Ukraine with them. Other times they, um, they, they left without anything at all and the money um, remained in um, what would become the Soviet Union. Uh, the industries in Huzovka were nationalized and the name was changed to Stalino. And then later again, with de-Stalinization during the era of Nikita Khrushchev, the name changed again. And at this point, it got its name, which it has today, which is Donetsk. I think that was in 1961 that that change was made. So the, the, what was formerly Huzovka, named after John Hughes, is today's Donetsk, which you're no doubt hearing about on the news because it's uh, one of these places that's been engulfed by fighting, not only now, but since 2014 when the war broke broke out there. Obviously, it, it, not right now, but were I to have been to, if, if I could go in peace to Donetsk and ask the people there, would they know about their Welsh connection? Well, there's actually a film um, that's just been made and that will be shown soon. Um, in actual fact, we're going to be hopefully... Um, you know, given everything that's going on, I hope it will still happen. Um, we were going to show the British premiere of the film in Ebba Vale in, in July. The film is all about the European investment in Donbass at this time. And it's made by a filmmaker from Donetsk. And he's uh, a, an acclaimed documentary filmmaker from Ukraine. This film explores all of this heritage. They thought that the British had been present there and um, there were these kind of sort of mythologized tales about about where they'd lived and so on. It obviously wasn't part of the region's history that was celebrated in the Soviet period. Well, I hope I hope that does get to go ahead. Is he OK? Have you been in touch with the, the who's made the film? With Cornet. Um, I yeah. haven't I managed to be in touch with Cornet yet, but I have been in touch with lots of my friends in Donbass and they're very much not OK. They wrote this morning that they don't have water or bread or heating. It's incredibly worrying. And, you know, the Hughes story is, is interesting because it's a story of migration from Wales to Ukraine. 
And now we're looking at another story of migration, a huge outpouring of migrants from the borders of Ukraine into the borders of the European Union. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs>